0: Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off
1: of the Falcon 9. Falcon 9 is 30,000. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. In this week's podcast, my special guest is John Mankins, formerly with NASA and now running a consultancy, Artemis Innovation Management Solutions, LLC. John also works with an Australian startup, more on that later, and works with various other space organizations. John also happens to be one of the foremost experts and advocates for space-based solar power, our topic today. Listen in. Welcome, John, to the Space Economy Podcast. Good
0: morning, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
1: The concept of space solar power to deliver it to Earth has been around for over 50 years. I think it was about 53 years ago that... uh, somebody first came out with the, uh, the concept. I remember it seemed to be, uh, become a larger topic of conversation about 10, 15 years ago, then it sort of quieted down. Now I'm starting to see more efforts in this area with an end game of a viable commercial industry, uh, in the not too distant future. In 2018, the international Academy of astronautics began a first of its kind decadal study on this promising technology. Here to discuss the nearly completed study is John Mankins, the chair of the study, who has been a longtime advocate. Um, and also, John recently presented uh, some findings at the International Astronautical Congress. So I thought it'd be a great time to get caught up on this and to present this uh, to you, our listeners, who uh, might find this uh, a very interesting uh, up-and-coming technology. Um, so, But before we get into some of the findings uh, of the study to date, Could you please provide our listeners a a brief introduction to the concept of of space solar power uh, and why it could be important in the near future?
0: Uh, Certainly, it'd be a pleasure. Uh, So space solar power uh, is, as you uh, indicated, the concept of harvesting sunlight in space uh, where at a high altitude using a platform that's deployed for that purpose, uh, the sunlight Uh, in uh, space near Earth is about 30% higher in energy uh, because it hasn't passed through Earth's atmosphere and it hasn't been uh, reflected by clouds and so on. Uh, And uh, if you place the platform at a high altitude, uh, for example, a geostationary Earth orbit, it can be in the sun 99.95% of the time, uh, pretty much continuously, except right around the march and september uh, equinoxes when geostationary earth orbit passes through earth's shadow for a few minutes uh, for a couple of weeks Uh, space solar power would uh, be generated on the platform from the incoming sunlight turned in it's turned into electricity Uh, the electricity is converted into radio waves uh, usually in the microwave region in order to, to uh, pass without the interference through Earth's atmosphere. It's transmitted as a coherent uh, radio transmission to receivers on the ground, where it's converted back into electricity um, using a technology called a rectifying antenna, uh, and then to put into the grid. Uh, so it's, a, it's an end-to-end system solution. Uh, works best at rather large scales. Um, on the order of a thousand um, megawatts or more, uh, and would deliver power much like a hydroelectric power plant uh, to locations um, around the world, uh, and not requiring uh, water or um, uh, or uh, um, uh, access to, uh, to to cooling systems as other power plants do.
1: All right, so. That's a good uh, uh brief introduction um, I'm really fascinated by the uh, amount of energy that, that you need to transmit um but let's talk about um what's actually changed in the in the last ten years that has increased the interest in 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 solar power. so from my understanding i I had a brief look at the paper that you presented there were some you know you 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 sort of broke it down into uh, some technological advances. Uh, program developments, and market changes. So let's talk about all those areas. And let's talk about the, the technological uh, advances that have been made in the last 10 years that are making this uh, concept uh, closer to reality. Um, and I'm assuming it's because um, uh, costs and, and the rest of it have gone down. But let, let's let's
0: so get you to answer that. So the first international assessment of, of course, space solar power, as you mentioned, has been around since the late 1960s as an idea. Uh, When it was first looked at in the 1970s, the costs were exorbitant, both for development and the cost of electricity that would have been produced. And interest kind of died, uh, as did the program activities in the US. R&D continued, technology continued to uh, make progress. Uh, There was a a brief surge of activity, which is when I got involved in the 1990s in NASA. And uh, then around 2010, the International Academy of Astronautics did the first international assessment on space solar power. uh, And that kind of came on the heels of some some interest in the idea within the Department of Defense uh, for potential application of space solar power in military applications where a premium price could be charged uh, for the energy being delivered, because it would be, for example, for forward operating bases. the That first International Academy of Astronautics uh, study, uh, 2008 to 2011, found that the concept was certainly technically feasible, but there were some fairly significant technical hurdles. Well, uh, starting in around 2005, two of the most significant of those technical hurdles um, began to fall, first and foremost with the first launch of a Falcon 9 reusable, uh, reusable space access became a real thing. And that's only been six years ago. Uh, And uh, uh, the cost of launch, posted cost of launch using such reusable systems is so much lower and so competitive compared to any other existing source all sorts of others are now trying to develop similar systems, first and foremost, Blue Origin, but also internationally in Japan, in China, in Europe, all driven by the the lure of two thousand dollars a kilogram launch to space, i e ninety percent less than the cost of launch using the space shuttle. The second huge change uh, has just been in the last uh, twenty four to thirty six months. And that was the uh, advent of factory-produced, low-cost space hardware. The mega constellations, uh, uh, Kuiper System, uh, OneWeb, Starlink, and and so on are all reliant on the idea that you can make space hardware for one or two thousand dollars per kilogram, rather than one or two hundred. $1000 per kilogram. And between those two revolutions, launch at 90% less than it was just 10 years ago and space hardware at 99% less than it was 5 years ago. Um this is this suddenly makes really big space systems <laughs> not only uh, uh plausible but almost inevitable if there's a market.
1: Now, what about um, the wireless power transmission? I, I'm, I read here that there was some uh, technological breakthroughs there.
0: Yeah, so the so the the roots of wireless power transmission go back to the 1960s. Uh, core technologies like the high efficiency conversion of a microwave transmission into electricity that was established uh, back circa 1963. More recently, there have been dramatic advances. In the solid state electronics, for for example, uh, power amplifiers uh, getting up in the uh, 70% and higher efficiency range that are making high efficiency solid state and therefore uh, easy to mass produce, cheap to make uh, solid state wireless power transmission uh, far more uh, effective, cost effective uh, than they would have been uh, a decade ago. And the the reason why that matters, just to digress for one second, it's a systems level problem. If you've got a low efficiency uh, RF power generation, you have to get rid of the waste heat. And the waste heat impacts the whole rest of the system design and its mass and its complexity and all of those things. So higher efficiency translates directly into lower cost systems.
1: And what about this uh, sandwich module that was tested? Uh, the prototype that was tested by the uh, Naval Research Lab.
0: Yep. So, so one of the one of the principal architectural approaches uh, to wire to space solar power that looks really promising is one in which you have uh, what's called a sandwich. It, it, it's uh, basically one module which is photovoltaics, in in and another module which is a radio uh, power transmitter. And in between, you have our electronics that take the electricity from the PV module, send it and, and, and convert it and deliver it to the RF generator. And you've also got some structure in there. That approach basically means that you can make a solar power satellite out of literally tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of identical modules with some other stuff. But that's the principal part of it. And uh, just recently, there was a really nice uh, technology uh, demonstration that was done by the Naval Research Laboratory, a good friend, uh, Dr. Paul Jaffe, and his team that flew the first um, – these modules, these sandwich models have been built before, uh, going back some years, uh, uh, but they have not yet been flown prior to this very nice test that uh, NRL did, uh, Dr. Jaffe did just recently.
1: All right. Now, uh, before we start getting into the program developments and uh, market changes, I, I'm curious. Now, you've talked about the launch costs, the, the uh, some of the breakthroughs in technology, uh, everything that's bringing down the cost of actually doing this. But um, to give us a bit of scale, to create a space solar um, uh, space solar power, let's say, grid in space, what type of scale do you need? Like, how big is this?
0: Well, the sunlight is is what it is. It's about uh, in space. It's about thirteen hundred and sixty-seven watts per square meter. Uh, so that's about uh, uh, one and a quarter kilowatts per square yard. If you're if you're in North America, uh, I'm going to stick with with uh, with meters and and uh, uh, SI units, scientific units, because that's the one I that's what I think in. Um, yeah. Uh, because the intensity of sunlight is low, all solar power systems are large. Uh, it's just inevitable that you're going have have to have to acquire enough power to make a difference. And, and just for reference, it takes about uh, 2,000 megawatts to drive, to provide the power for 1 million homes. So for a, a, a moderate-sized city, it takes about 2,000 megawatts of electricity to power the homes, the streets, the streetlights, and so on. And that's only going to get higher. And we're going to talk about markets in a minute. But in space, that translates into a requirement to intercept literally square kilometers of sunlight. And turn it into electricity, turn it into RF, and send it to the ground. Uh, and so the so you inevitably end up with quite large platforms to intercept enough sunlight uh, to make a difference in the in terrestrial markets, um, on the order of uh, uh, platforms that would be on the order of kilometers in uh, in their major dimensions, uh, length, height, width, and so on.
1: Which is why it's important to have low-cost Critical, critical. Low-cost parts. Yep. So, um, I'm going to, before we still get into the program developments and everything, uh, I, I, of course, this brings on other questions that come to my mind. Um, and we'll keep it short, I suppose, on this. Um, so, because of the cost of launches so much, obviously, or and it has gone down and cost of, you know, manufacturing is coming down but you still need great volumes to, to do this. Um, I can see that in you know the first tests and whatnot, everything's going to be launched into space. And I suppose this might actually be jumping forward into market changes, but are we going to see some of that manufacturing move into space?
0: I think in the long run, yes. But I think I think manufacturing is one of those sectors that has to have a market to feed into. And so and so in in many cases, space solar, as we're going to talk about in a moment, space solar power is being pulled by market changes here on Earth. But manufacturing in space will actually, I think, be pulled into existence by markets like space solar power. So once you start having a space solar power industry, it provides the market for products made in space.
1: All right. Uh, And one last question before we move on to the other stuff, which is um, because it's a technical question to educate me um, when you have this farm collecting in space, uh, collecting the energy in space, um, does it include, uh, you know, do you have a, a how big or like, is it real time then sending it back to Earth? Or do you actually have like a battery system in place where you store the
0: energy? And then you can move it uh, onward. Yeah. So the the system which is in space has some operational batteries, just like all satellites have batteries to to, to tide them over when they don't get sunlight. But uh, all the energy storage for the market would be on Earth. It's just too massive to to try to launch all of that into space. So so you in in space you generate the power, you deliver it to the ground. You have. Um, Uh, working storage, as it were, associated with the ground receiver. Uh, And then you can can literally turn the beam on and off as you need to, and the power is not interrupted for the market because of the the receiver having its own uh, energy storage system.
1: That makes sense. And the energy storage on the ground can hold whatever it needs to access and meet it out as it needs it. Exactly. Okay. Got that. All right. So going next to program developments, um, and I noticed that there were two things that you had listed. One was climate change and one was cislunar space development. Um, so give us a little bit on on both of those and we'll start off with the climate change since that seems to be a very hot topic these
0: days. <laughs> so there's a, there's a, a stupendous, um, I think for the most part, all of the scientific debate is now over about whether or not climate change is occurring. Uh, there are some holdouts that are fighting a rearguard action, arguing, well, it's happening, but it it has nothing to do with us. We're not driving. it." Or it's happening, but it's going to change again soon because everything always changes. So I'm going to set those aside for the moment and speak to this as a market opportunity and a market driver. The fact of the matter is hundreds of countries and scores of governments now agree that climate change is a crisis. And that uh, the world needs to move off of fossil fuel-based energy production. Now, that means that there's there's a tremendous um, push for what's called carbon net zero energy development and energy deployment. And um, and despite what 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 advocates may say, there is no real solution at this time for that. And and the reason I say it that way is that if you if you try to make an energy solution for for London for Berlin for Singapore for Moscow for Paris uh, for Kinshasa for Mumbai for all of these major megalopolises major major cities with millions of people they all exist in kind of a temperate zone of the world between about 25 degrees north latitude or so and about twenty-five degrees south latitude or so, and it rains there. And they have bad weather, and they have weeks or d- days or weeks of calm air, and they and they and they change wildly over the season. So you get a, a good summer day with clear sky, is radically different than the rainy season with three or five weeks of overcast. And so uh, these countries want power; they need power. Their economies depend on it. The quality of life for billions of people depend on energy. And we're not going to get there with only uh, ground-based solar and ground-based offshore wind, because of the intermittent nature of those sources. So, um, given the demand, given the changing market, there's a, a real opportunity for other energy options um, that are low carbon uh, and can provide power uh, when the sun's not shining and when the wind isn't blowing and when there's a requirement for literally uh, millions of kilowatt hours of energy that otherwise would not be available from these green sources. And so that's the market opportunity.
1: Yeah, and I remember um, during the pandemic Um, cities like New Delhi uh, and Beijing and others, the air was cleaner, right? Because a lot of the factories and whatnot were shut down, right? But in a possible future, uh, not pandemic related, but when those factories are not using those fossil fuel-based energy sources, but let's say using something like this, um, that could have a significant impact on the local climate instead of having those days where you know it's a uh you know breathing uh, warning you know don't go out no. if you have respiratory issues don't wear you must wear a mask and you can't see 15 feet in front of you uh with this type of energy um uh, solution that wouldn't happen right yeah
0: all of that changes
1: yeah i was and that changes the economics of everything you bet
0: i was actually in and in beijing several years ago to to give a talk and uh, it was one of those bad days. And you literally, you couldn't go outside without it burning your throat and you could not see a, a high-rise building across the street. Yeah.
1: All right, so talk about the uh, Cislunar.
0: So the other the other huge change which has occurred in the last uh, 10 years in terms of the market for space energy is the uh, the, the now confident belief based on data that there is a vast amount of of uh, ice uh, entrapped in the permanently shadowed regions of the uh, the uh, of the moon of earth's moon um whereas historically say 15 years ago there was one lunar mission globally a year or one every couple of years today something like 30 different countries are all planning to go to the moon there are literally dozens of lunar uh, experiments, probes, missions, landers, including the US planned human landing on the moon, all scheduled for the next six or eight years. And it's all driven by the resources of the moon that have now been identified and validated, and the role that those resources could play in, frankly, a a new version of the great game, making reference to the um, the uh, struggle for uh, power and uh, energy uh, in the Middle East uh, a century and a half ago, uh, the great game, as it's described uh, by Peter Gerritsen, uh, for, um, uh, I'll say, essentially, uh, not dominance so much as uh, being a player and a successful player in lunar space uh, and uh, uh, having access to a refueling station uh, on the moon, and and its potential role is critical to all of that. Well, all this ice is in, in these permanently shadowed regions. They're permanently shadowed. They're called permanently shadowed regions because they're in the dark, and they're they're at approximately uh, 40 to 60 Kelvin, 40 to 60 degrees above absolute universe level zero. They're cold. They're dark. Nobody is mining any ice. Nobody's doing any of this stuff without huge amounts of energy. And there's no place to plug in. And uh, there are nearby, there are these, uh, what are called the peaks of eternal light. They're not actually uh, eternal, but they have a lot of sunlight. And they're um, five, 10, 20 kilometers, uh, 10 or or 15 miles from where these permanently shadowed regions are. So all of the technologies that you need for a solar powered satellite, solar power generation, wireless power transmission, high efficiency conversion, all of those same technologies, and in many cases, the same systems, could be used to deliver power from a peak on the moon where it's in sunlight down into a canyon on the moon where the good stuff is, where the, where the ice, where the uh, frozen carbon dioxide, where all of these volatiles are waiting to be harvested and and the and whoever does this first and successfully, uh, wins the game, as it were. Uh, and so right. there's this just just tremendous new market. And and I'll just say one la- one other thing about the 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 changing market, and all of that is going to depend on affordable power, not power like we have on the International Space Station, where it's kilowatts or tens of kilowatts. At 25 or 50 dollars a kilowatt hour, to do mining and resources and all this stuff, we're going to need. Whoever does it is going to need megawatts, and they're going to need it at below a dollar a kilowatt hour. And so it's orders of magnitude more power, at orders of magnitude less price, um, and and all in the next ten years or so.
1: All right, so that then takes us into the conversation on on market changes, and there have been market changes. So uh, let's first talk about, and we've we've already touched on it, markets in space. We talked about the cislunar. Um, let's talk about uh, Leo, low Earth orbit. Um, what can you say?
0: So so this is one of those areas where where the the de- the, the demand of the terrestrial. Um, infotainment market is pulling humanity into a different future uh, in particular, as I, I mentioned earlier, all of these mega constellations uh, well every single um, satellite in the Star wit link network and there' are, so far there's I think 1700 of them they're manufa- yeah. the Star, uh, SpaceX is manufacturing on the order of 30 tons of satellites every month they're manufacturing on the order of 120 satellites a month and four satellites a day they've all got multiple kilowatts of power on board they're rf generating satellites and the if you take uh, say let's say it's let's say it's about four or five kilowatts there's 1700 of them right there is 10 megawatts of solar energy that's been launched by spacex into low earth orbit in the last two years the space station's only 150 kilowatts. 100 kilowatts steady. So here have one company that has deployed um, space solar power systems, not for power transmission, but to use on the spacecraft, 15 times, 15 times more power. And they're on their way to 12,000 satellites, 40,000 satellites, uh, plus Kuiper, plus all these other systems. So in low-Earth orbit, low-Earth orbit is already... Being revolutionized by low-cost solar power in space.
1: Okay, this pro- government and programs
0: just haven't caught up yet.
1: No, um <laughs> and they're not going to. <laughs> uh, I think we've changed. Uh, we we you know, we'll always need. Well, no, we no always will need, but um, the days of just government are, at least in some areas, are, are you know, gone. It's government and commercial um, or private. So uh, what about uh, remote markets on Earth? How, how does that uh, fit into the equation?
0: So so um, uh, niche markets on Earth, uh, including things like remote mining systems, uh, they all, actually all knits together because there are a lot of markets on earth where you need on the order of 50 or 100 megawatts uh, for remote mining, remote communities, uh, and they're willing to pay a premium, 25 or 30 cents a kilowatt hour, whereas most uh, uh, base load markets in major areas are below 15 cents a kilowatt hour, sometimes as low as five uh, or six cents a kilowatt hour. These remote markets now, today, all use diesel they all use fossil fuels to drive their their businesses those those uh, activities so their, their economies and they're all going and we've all been driven being driven to go carbon net zero so what's the alternative for these remote markets like um, for example a mining operation in the middle of australia uh, if they are not going to use uh, diesel fuel and they want to stay in business then they're a market for um, uh, space solar power at that scale.
1: I have a, a different scenario for you because it's something I've experienced. Uh, I've been to the high Arctic on Devon Island. So, you know, it, and I, when I say high Arctic, I mean very high Arctic, 1,000 kilometers from 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 the, uh, from the North Pole. Devon Island is the largest uninhabited island in the world. There were lots of lunar and uh, Mars... Um, uh analog research there which is why i was there but at the same time and we were visited by these people there is a diamond and there have been other operations mining operations there well the cost for them to provide the energy that they need on location is just crazy the question is would um space solar power be a cost effective solution do you think for this type of remote location
0: so so one of the things about the uh, – if you were going to develop it just for them, the answer would be no. But if you're developing space solar power and all of these modular systems, you, you have to have factories, you've got to have the design, you've got to be able to put them together with robotics, all that stuff. So all of that stuff you get for free as far as Devon Island is concerned because you're going to develop it for the moon. You're going to develop it for some other application. That means you can simply pay the marginal cost of a platform to deliver tens of megawatts to a remote diamond mine. Um, that that otherwise you wouldn't be able. It would never be cost effective. It's not. It's not like building a traditional spacecraft, where you're going to build something new and from scratch. It's more like I'm going to run off a na- another ten thousand uh, blocks for my my uh, my tinker toy set. Well, once you've got everything in place, you just run off another ten thousand blocks, and you put them together, right. and and there you go.
1: All right. Um, all right. So let's uh, sort of change gears here and talk about uh, the leaders in in this area. Who, who's doing uh, the most research? Who's what countries are are advancing this technology, and and who might be the first to. Uh, do a uh, you know significant test in space?
0: Uh, so uh, of course the the first recent test, the uh, most recent test uh, of the of the of a single module was the one done by the Naval Research Lab. We talked about that by Dr. Jaffe. Um, right now there are uh, on there's ongoing R and D uh, through the U.S. Air Force. They're working on a particular concept with the Northrop Grumman. Uh, that would be designed to deliver a pretty high-end cost power for forward operating base kinds of applications. It's really not a commercial in any way. It's not a commercial venture. It's a military program, right. but it is a lot of money. They're putting a they have in the last five years invested something between 100 and 150 million dollars. Some some large amount of money. Um, in addition. Uh, there was a fairly large program for basic research, long lead research at Caltech that was sponsored by, uh, a Southern California billionaire. Uh, I believe his name is uh, Bryn. Um, so I'm going to take Sergey Bryn, uh, not Sergey. It's a, I think, um, okay. <laughs> I think Donald <laughs> Bryn, maybe it is okay. if I remember correctly and, and don't, uh, don't quote me, obviously, uh, He's uh, maybe associated with the Irvine Company. Anyway, um, I, okay. I'm, I'm wildly jealous that he donated his $100 million to Caltech to to do research in space solar power. But and and they did right. research; they didn't do development, so they did all the on the research side. Um, right. Probably the 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 biggest strongest player in technology development continues to be Japan. Japan's been a leader in this for 20 years. Um, but but coming fast on their heels are the Chinese. the Chinese have recently completed their second major research laboratory for space solar power and and uh, these are really beautiful state-of-the-art facilities um, and and they're right they're the, that second one's coming online right now as we speak um, so they've they've invested, Oh, I don't know. Um, If you if you tried to do it in the U.S., it's probably at least one hundred million dollars in facilities. Uh, It's less than that in uh, in the Chinese context. But but nevertheless, they're beautiful facilities. Um, The uh, the government of the U.K., the United Kingdom, just finished a study earlier this year on space solar power to get the carbon net zero for the U.K., Uh, They recently announced a new space policy uh, that includes space solar power, and they're going to be investing out of a new innovation fund for carbon net zero in space solar power. I haven't seen a written number. I've heard it said it's going to be on the order of of, um, uh, a a finite number of of millions of pounds of resources. Uh, They formed a new organization in the UK, their space energy initiative. And they're, they're moving forward with it very uh, dramatically. And it's for exactly the same reasons that we've talked about, i.e., there's no way to get the carbon net zero with a, a, a far northern latitude country without some alternative other than wind and uh, conventional wind and solar. Um, the European Space Agency has a new director general. He announced uh, when he first came on board a new strategic roadmap for, for ESA called the uh, ESA Agenda 2025, and they are, and, and it calls for research in space solar power. They are having their very first uh, workshop, um, uh, international workshop on space solar power next week, in fact. Um, okay. so, uh, so the, the UK, uh, the European Space Agency, there's a lot of interest in various countries, there's a startup in Australia, there's Japan, there's China, there's some studies, research ongoing at, at Kari in South Korea. It's it's like the same kind of story that we discussed a moment ago for the moon. It's it's almost like a snowball. When nobody was looking at it, nobody wanted to look at it. Now that everybody's starting to look at it, and and these things have happened that make it feasible, now nobody wants to get left behind. All
1: right. So um... Yeah, let's talk briefly about uh, startups. Um, are there any startups that you know of that are um, that you can name that that look like they're you know they you know might be onto something? That's number one, uh, and then number two, um, and this is for the you know I've got a lot of startup companies that listen to the podcast uh, and people interested. What are the opportunities for startups at this point what what areas would should they be looking at as a market opportunity in terms of you know are they should be developing a specific technology
0: so so the the um, I think well, I have to say, just to answer your first question. so I think one of the most promising startups is obviously the one that I'm involved in <laughs> Okay, uh, and I'm a I'm a director of a startup that's actually based in Australia, called uh, Solar Space Technologies, uh, because Australia represents a, a really attractive market uh, uh, in um, the uh, sort of Southeast Asia. It's it's at the lower end of Southeast Asia, but um, solar power satellites can send their power to a lot of places, and so um, and.
1: It's okay to plug, you, plug okay. your startup.
0: I, I, it's not my nature. It's not my nature. So, um, yeah. Anyways,
1: you're not Canadian. Go for it.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, uh, I'm also working. Uh, I, I work. Uh, um, uh, I have my own company here in the U.S., uh, which is trying to do the same thing. I really believe that that space solar power only happens for com- for commercial applications, for for civil carbon net zero applications, if it's an international endeavor. It it doesn't happen with one country trying to do it in isolation, the way that the U.S. looked at it in the nineteen seventies, and so I think there has to be a broad international engagement, and it's got to be both public and, and private. So working out all those details is is a is a challenge, uh, but I will just say with regard to um, uh, startups and ventures that the. This modular approach to building really large systems uh, means that there's lots of opportunity to do parts of the problem. Uh, These uh, platforms are going to need station keeping. That means thousands of arc jet thrusters uh, in in thousands of or in in hundreds of of um, solar electric propulsion modules that hold that control them keep them in place. It means uh, literally tens of thousands of um wireless routers for space applications uh which nobody's doing right now because these platforms are are going to be like a coral reef they're going to be like in a biosphere in space space with dozens of species individual kinds of systems manufactured in thousands of of or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of units uh, and so, as an industry, it's going to be like the IT industry, where you have lots of companies making mobile phones. You have lots of other companies making screens and cases and and uh, amplifiers that all go into the mobile phones. So I I really believe that if this takes off the way the market needs for it to, that it will become an extremely uh, diverse and um, and rich industry. Uh, like uh, the automotive industry was in the um, in the U.S. in the 50- um i
1: I'll just throw a wrench into all that and just say, you talk about the international side of it, but you also mentioned China as an up and coming player. Are they going to make it an international effort, or is this uh, really a,
0: a national effort? I think the I think in in terms of what China will uh, will ultimately do, I think it's going to wait. To, de- to, de- to be determined. But I will just say that in their efforts uh, with regard to the moon, uh, what what China has done is to reach out to Roscosmos, make an agreement to do an international lunar research station. And that international re- lunar research station, when it was announced last June, first in St. Petersburg, first thing they did was to release a user's guide saying common work at our research station. So I I uh, I I think it remains to be seen, again how it plays out, but I think I think that there's such tremendous opportunity for soft power in a thing like space solar power as opposed to hard power. You know, you don't you if 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 you're OPEC, you have enormous clout way beyond your uh, population uh, in a particular uh, OPEC member. Uh, I think uh, having the um, the switch on the future of world uh, energy is so impactful that you're gonna want to have everybody line up with your system, with your standards, your spectrum, your, and, and uh, but I, I think it's gonna be a really exciting uh, decade or two.
1: Um, now, coming up with another thought um, on the policy side, you said that, uh, these uh, power generation stations would be in uh, GEO. Um, are there any politics to that, in terms of where it actually gets located because of um, you know policies that are currently in place?
0: Yeah, so it's all all of all of that has to be sorted out through the International Telecommunications Union. Not only the orbital slots, but also the spectrum allocation. Uh, the, the the GEO is a is an extremely uh, potent orbit because if you're in GEO, you can use a fixed geometry, uh, mechanical deployed transmitter system with the transmitter and the antenna and all those things you point it and it just stays pointed at the same spot on the ground. And with these, with these RF uh, ph- these uh, wireless power transmission systems are gonna be phased arrays. So they will have active beam steering. And so you you wanna be in geo approximately. You don't have to be actually in geo. And so I think there's still gonna be a huge issue to be worked out for spectrum allocation, uh, for um, uh, orbital slots. I don't think it's gonna come to any kind of a real issue with regard to specific slots in geo per se because these are gonna be active phased array and they could be a little above, they could be a little below, it just won't matter. And as long as they can see the ground below them, they're gonna be able to send power uh, actively. And then at the end of the day, um, operations and maintenance, these things are gonna be like little moons. I mean, one of these platforms is gonna weigh on the order of, of 8,000 tons. And there's gonna be a lot of them if, if it's gonna make a difference in the, in the uh, marketplace. Uh, and so, uh, ultimately, I think the uh, uh, the operations and maintenance of these platforms, and when things on them die, getting rid of the things that have died in some uh, um, sustainable way, all of that's going to become uh, uh, a major industry.
1: Uh, one last question, and then I'll give it to you for some, some last thoughts. Um, uh, risks. Are there any risks with this technology in terms of beaming it back to Earth? Because uh, you know people are going to come up and, and, and ask those types of questions. That's a lot of energy that you're throwing back at Earth.
0: Yeah. So, so one of the one of the um, the 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 central features, um, and it all kind of works out more or less naturally. One of the central features of Earth's atmosphere is that it likes visible light. It's got a gap in the in the in the um, the gases and the and the the uh, moisture in the atmosphere lets visible light through, otherwise none of us would be here we wouldn't exist and when the when the wavelengths get long enough, say starting it around the radio waves and the microwaves then then you can uh, send send energy through the atmosphere again and that's really convenient because otherwise we wouldn't have a space program because radio waves wouldn't be able to communicate with satellites because it wouldn't go through the atmosphere um, so the uh um um the fact that we're driven to go to microwaves and the fact that electromagnetic radiation is uh, obeys a certain set of laws of physics means that these systems uh, which have to be large to collect enough sunlight also really can't focus all that well so it's kind of a it's a it's a happy circumstance that if you're in a part of the spectrum that comes through the atmosphere the microwave then you you really can't get to super high density on the earth which is like 36,000 kilometers away like like uh, uh, 28,000 miles away something like that um, the maximum power density for an electromagnetic transmission of this sort is going to be about 240 250 watts per square meter and just for reference full summer sun you go out in the desert at noon it's about a thousand watts per square meter and and it's it's got a lot of uv to it so it'll cause you sunburn and skin cancer and and microwaves don't do any of that and it's it's a fraction of sunlight now that's at the center on average it's about a hundred watts per square meter so it's about 10 percent of summer sunlight on the edges it drops off like a gaussian on the edge of the, the receiver. It's like one or two watts per square meter, which is like a mobile phone. And under underneath the receiver, which is like a, a mesh uh, mesh fence, underneath the receiver, that it's way below one watt per square meter. It's a it's a tiny tiny fraction of mobile phone uh, RF. So it it's not saying that it's not an issue. It's not saying that you don't have to work on it, but that all the data that it exists at the moment and all the all the testing and so on. It all suggests that if we do this the right way, we can not only have it be safe, but we can make it uh, safe in a way that is uh, more fail safe than many other uh, energy options. Uh, and by the way, how big is the receiver on on, on the ground? So for the, uh, for the system concept uh, that we're working on, it's about um, uh, six kilometers across. So that's about uh, 28 square kilometers. Uh, let me give you a, another number just for, and as I said, it's like a hydroelectric system. It's like a lake. Produces two gigawatts. It's six kilometers across. Um, just for, by way of comparison, uh, the, um, the Lake Mead behind Hoover Dam, Hoover Dam in the U.S., it's in Nevada, produces two gigawatts. It produces the same amount of power that lake is about 500 square kilometers. And the, the catchment area for the lake is like 400,000 square kilometers. So 28 square kilometers, it's a big area, but if you think of it like a like a lake that it is catching sunlight rather than water, um, it's not a super large area with regard to, uh, if you compare it to, to hydro.
1: Hi, right. um, If you're interested in this, uh, where do you go? Uh,
0: so there's there are a number of websites. Uh, there was some recent um, uh, recent, a really good story uh, done by the Financial Times came out last week. It's about 17 minutes. Um, uh, I'm featured, which is uh, why I know about it. Uh, there was a nice article subsequently in the BBC. Uh, a, a shorter one on the BBC programs, uh, on the British programs for space solar power. Uh, there's a terrific library of references on space solar power that's been accumulated over the years uh, by the National Space Society. Um, the the study, that um, so the NSS.org, uh, the study that uh, you mentioned earlier by the International Academy of Astronautics, the original one is available. Online at the IAA uh, website, um, uh, International Academy of Astronautics. Uh, I have a book out; uh, it's several years old now, but it's uh, called "The Case for Space Solar Power." Uh, and the, I'm I'm working hard on the second edition. It'll be coming out uh, sometime early next year.
1: And what about the the, the study that you you uh, presented? What, what it was supposed to come out. Uh, this year, but it was delayed by COVID. So, when's it coming out next year? So,
0: this is the decadal update. Uh, so, the, yeah. the original study done by the academy was uh, completed in 2011. We were gonna, we were working on a decadal update to, like, the a National Science Foundation. The, sorry, the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S. does a decadal update on the plan and and prospectus for lunar exploration, planetary exploration, astrophysics every 10 years. So we were we were we are doing a decadal update of the um, Academy, International Academy assessment of space solar power. Uh, It is uh, hopefully going to come out uh, next fall. So we're just next fall. okay? COVID, COVID allowing.
1: COVID allowing. We're going to get rid of COVID. All right. Uh, Any last thoughts?
0: Uh, Only that uh, I I I absolutely uh, believe that uh, we are. For for the reasons we've talked about, we are on the cusp of an absolute revolution in space activity and the participation in space activity. Uh, Things like these mega constellations for direct from space uh, internet, machine-to-machine communications. You look at the impact of GPS on on the economy, I think these things are going to have disproportionate punching above their weight. Uh, in terms of their impact, starting very shortly. All of the other things we've talked about, uh, space resources, uh, uh, all enabled by low cost power and low cost transportation. And and uh, those things are coming. So I, I think it's a very exciting time.
1: All right. Thank you, John. Uh, as those exciting uh, happenings happen, we'll get you back on to, to talk about them. Super. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. As a reminder, SpaceQ has two other podcasts in our network. Terranauts, hosted by industry veteran Ian Christie, which is now in Season 3. And they just launched Earth and Space podcast, focused on how we use space to benefit us in our everyday lives. Your feedback is very much appreciated. You can send us a comment or a guest recommendation to podcast at spaceq.ca. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, at The Economy Space, and you can also support the podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you
0: listen to us. Okay, until next time.